Well, good morning, Crossridge. Great to have you here this morning. If you are new with us, my name is Lee. I'm one of the pastors here. It is uh, great to be gathered like this and to have a time of worship together and now to open God's Word. Uh, As a church, one of the things that we do on a regular basis uh, each week is we like to have a different prayer focus. We pray for something that is happening uh, in the life of our church or in our community or in our world, something along those lines. Uh, I thought it was fitting this week if we would just take a minute Uh, We have lots of kids who are headed back to school, lots of teachers who are headed back to school uh, within our church. Uh, We've got some of you are heading back to college and university. We have a daughter who is heading off to uh, Texas for a year of Bible school on Tuesday. So we're dealing with all the emotions that come along with that. I know you've got lots of stuff going on as well. So would you just join me in praying for our families and for those who are teaching uh, during this time? Father, we do want to thank you for your grace, your goodness, we thank you. I just thank you for all the, the children that are represented uh, in this church. Uh, we thank you for the great blessing that is. We know that uh, for some, they're beginning a new school, some new uh, new grades, and, and uh, some new places. And so, Lord, we pray for those students as they go back, uh, that you would use them as salt and light in their environments. Uh, we pray for the teachers in our church. We know that there's a heavy responsibility that comes with that. There are challenges that come uh, with that in this day, and so we pray for uh, their equipping, that they'd be ready for uh, this new year, and uh, we just pray that as a church we would do a great job of discipling those at all different stages of life, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to Galatians chapter 6. Uh, This is the final week in our series, our study of the book of Galatians. And just as we come to that, let me just say, you know, if you've ever had to write a research paper, uh, then you will know that one of the fundamental rules of writing a paper like that is that when you get to the conclusion of the paper, you're not supposed to introduce any new material. So you don't spend sort of 10 pages of writing about some theory of economics, and then at the last minute say, and it's also good if you, you know, brush and floss daily, right? You don't just sort of interject something, some brand new thought to that. A good conclusion is really there to restate and to summarize what's been said all along. And as we come to the end of the book of Galatians, and we see Paul's conclusion to this letter, that's really what this is. So in one sense, there is nothing new in the verses we're going to read this morning, Um, but it doesn't mean that this is somehow redundant or irrelevant or that we don't need to pay attention to what Paul has to say here. Paul's own words actually draw attention to the fact that what he's about to say here is of vital importance to every one of us. So let's read. Galatians chapter 6, beginning at verse 11 and going to the end of the chapter. I'm actually going to invite you to stand this morning for the reading of God's Word. And here's what it says. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast 
except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. You can have a seat. So what are we supposed to take away from this passage? What are we supposed to take away from this book or from this letter? And as I see it, there are three main takeaways for us here. Um, Before we get to those, I do want to say something about this section as a whole, this conclusion to the book of Galatians. And And I want to do that by just drawing your attention to verse 11. Verse 11 again says this, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now that might seem like a strange thing for Paul to say. Paul is drawing attention to two things in particular. The first is that this part of the letter is written in his own handwriting. Now when we think about the letters that we find in the New Testament, the letters that Paul wrote, we ought to know that Paul didn't write those letters by hand, but he dictated them to an amanuensis or a secretary, a scribe of some sort. But that he would often dictate the bulk of the letter and then write the greeting right at the end in his own hand. So at the end of 1 Corinthians, we read, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Uh, Part of the reason that he did that was to attach kind of a personal note to the church that he was writing to, but another part of it was to authenticate that the letter really was coming from him and not from someone else. So at the end of 2 Thessalonians, we read this, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. So this is his custom. This is his pattern to authenticate the letter is coming from him. But here at the end of Galatians, Paul doesn't just draw attention to the fact that he writes the greeting with his own hand. He draws attention to the fact that as he writes this conclusion, he does so with very large letters, right? See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now, there are a couple of reasons that Paul might have used large letters as he wrote this greeting. Paul was a tent maker by trade, not a scribe, and the amanuensis, or the one who actually wrote the bulk of this letter, would have written it in very nice, tidy, cursive writing. And Paul, his writing next to that or compared to that might have looked like what you find from a pharmacist, right? Sort of like chicken scratch compared to these really large letters contained. They're all all caps in a sense. It might have been that he wrote in such large letters because Paul had trouble with his eyesight. There's an allusion to that back in chapter 4, and it might be just that as he now takes the pen and and writes, he's got to do so because he he doesn't see very well. There's, There's a possibility of that. But most likely, the reason Paul wrote with such large letters here is because he wanted to emphasize the importance of what he was writing. Uh, J.B. Phillips' paraphrase 
of this verse includes a footnote that says this, note how heavily I have pressed upon the pen in writing this. And and I think that's the idea. I mean, in our day, if we want to emphasize something as we write it, we're going to underline it, we're going to put it in bold font, or we're going to put it in all caps, right? If you get a text or you get an email in all caps, you know, well, you know it's probably spam, but, but what you know is this person wants to get my attention. They've put this in all capital letters. That's what Paul has done here. He's put this in all, see what large letters I use as I write this to you. Now, I, I kind of wonder that, that if we're going to be faithful in Bible translations, if in our English translations, this, setter, this section should be in all caps, right? Paul wants to say, this is important. Listen to this. Pay attention to what I'm about to say. So if these words are that important, what do they tell us? Well, I want to say that they teach us three essential truths. The first thing that they teach us is the dead-end nature of external religion. Verse 12 says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. Now, I haven't been here for this study in the book of Galatians, but this is the issue that prompted Paul to write this letter in the first place. What was happening in Galatia was that a group of Judaizers from Jerusalem had come down to Galatia and they had said to these Gentile converts to the Christian faith, look, it is great that you have put your faith in Jesus, but that's not enough. If you want to be right with God, you need to take this extra step and you need to get circumcised. That situation is described in Acts chapter 15 like this, where it says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, the real issue at the heart of this wasn't circumcision, but the gospel. That's why Paul begins this letter by saying this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. This different gospel gospel, this other gospel, consisted of Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus something else. And that's usually the nature of a false gospel. It's Jesus and, it's Jesus plus. In this case, it was Jesus plus circumcision, but when you read Acts chapter 15 in its entirety, you will see that it was Jesus plus the law of Moses. So there it says, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. That's what you need to be saved. Or that's what you need to do to be saved. You need to to keep the law of Moses and believe in Jesus. And I would just say that that kind of external religion is attractive for a number of reasons. One of the reasons it's attractive is because we can point to a list and we can say, well, look, I I, I did this and I did this and I did this. I went through this ritual. 
I attended this ceremony. I've done it. I can check that off. Now, it might be attractive, but it is a dead end. And there are lots of reasons it's a dead end, but I think there are at least three reasons highlighted here. The first reason is because it's pointed in the wrong direction. External religion is not only man-made, but man-focused. See, the focus of external religion is not on God, but on the people around us, making a good impression on them. Listen again to what Paul says here in verse 12. He says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They want to make a good showing in the flesh. What they really want to do is they want to avoid any persecution that might come because of the cross. And what they were saying to these Gentile converts to the Christian faith was that if you want to be part of the club, you need to get circumcised. That way, when, when we report back, we can say the reason we're associating with you is not because of the cross, but because you've accepted the sign of circumcision. The external religion focus, focuses almost entirely on what others might think, and not at all on what God requires. Now, when we come to this issue of circumcision in particular, we might say, well, well, I mean, wasn't circumcision something that God commanded in the Old Testament? It's a good question. Circumcision was part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. In Genesis 17, it says, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So what do we say to that? Well, the truth is that circumcision was never meant to be just an external ritual, just something that you went through. Circumcision was an external act. It was performed on the body. God commanded the Israelites to circumcise their male children as a sign of the covenant he made with them. But the purpose of that external act was never meant to be just an empty ritual. Listen to what God said through Moses. He said, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. And the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. True circumcision was a circumcision of the heart. It was something God did on the inside. Paul says it this way in the book of Romans, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise, that is the one who is inwardly transformed, is not from man, but from God. And that last line is interesting. His praise is not from man, but from God. And it's interesting because it connects to this passage in another way. Paul speaks of these false teachers wanting to make a good showing in the flesh, He says they want to compel the Gentile Christians in Galatia to be circumcised, that they won't experience the persecution of the cross. And then in verse 13, he goes on to say this. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. 
See, theirs was the type of religion that wanted to make a good showing. Outwardly. They didn't want to do anything that would lead to persecution or trouble. They, they actually didn't care about the spirit of the law. They cared about the letter of the law. They wanted to be able to boast about the number of converts to their particular brand of Christianity. External religion is always focused on what others might think. Does this make a good impression? Does my social standing get better because I'm part of this? Do I score any browning, brownie points for doing this? And this is why even doing good things for the wrong reason is something Jesus railed against. Uh, read through the Sermon on the Mount, and you'll find that this is one of the themes. Jesus will say, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And if you've read that, the Sermon on the Mount, then you know that Jesus goes on to give three examples of what this looks like. He says, look, when you give to the needy, do not sound a trumpet. Hey, everyone, look what I'm doing. Look how generous I am. But instead, you're to give in secret. You're to give in such a way that your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand is doing. He says, when you pray, don't stand in some prominent place so that everyone knows what a good prayer you are. I'm about to pray in the middle of this restaurant for all to hear so everyone will know just how godly I am. Instead, he says, go into your room, close the door, and pray in secret. And your Father, who is in secret, sees what you do. He will reward you. He says, when you fast, don't make yourself look glum so it's obvious to everyone that you're fasting. Oh, I'd love to join you for lunch today, but you know, I'm fasting and and it's really hard. He says, no, make yourself look normal. Put oil on your head. Do all the things you do. Giving, praying, fasting, they're all good things. But if you're doing them to be noticed by others, You're not worshiping God, but you're worshiping yourself. You're seeking the praise of man. External religion always points us in the wrong direction, always points us toward man and away from God. The second reason external religion is a dead end is because we can't keep the law perfectly. In verse 13, Paul says, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. Now, part of what he's addressing is is hypocrisy, right? They say one thing and do another. But what Paul is really saying is that no one has ever kept the law perfectly except Jesus. And sometimes when we boil things down to externals, we can sort of pick and choose the the ones that we have no trouble with. I mean, circumcision was a pretty easy one for the Jewish teachers. They would have been circumcised on the eighth day of their life. They could wear that like a badge of honor. Look, I've kept the law. I'm circumcised. But our inability to be consistent, our inability to keep the law is highlighted for us many times throughout the New Testament. Elsewhere, Paul will say, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. James says it this way, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Break one of God's commands, says James, and you're guilty of breaking all of them. No one can keep 
God's law perfectly. No one ever has except Jesus. The third reason external religion is a dead end is because it focuses on what we have done for God instead of what he has done for us. And this is really important. Verses 14 and 15 say this, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. I'm going to come back to verse 14 in in a few minutes, but just think about the implications of verse 15. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. To, To the Jewish way of thinking at the time, that would have been a scandalous statement. If that's not the way that I'm made right with God, then what is? And the only thing that counts, says Paul, is a new creation. That you've been made new by God. Now, I know there are lots of self-improvement books. There are lots of philosophies out there. But you can no more recreate yourself than you could create yourself in the first place. A new creation is a work of God. And the gospel preached by Jesus and his apostles was not sort of Judaism with a few tweaks. You know, let's just add this to it. The basis of our standing with God is whether or not we have experienced a new creation by his spirit coming to live within us. And not by our religious credentials. And if anyone understood this, it was the apostle Paul. Listen to what he wrote to the church in Philippi about his credentials. He said, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Those are his external credentials. But then he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on on faith. See, the Christian faith is not about what we have done for God. The Christian faith is about what Jesus has done for us, and that changes everything. That's the thing that can transform us. Second thing we discover here is the necessity and centrality of the cross. So back to verse 14. Verse 14 says, But far be it from me that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you've been studying the book of Galatians for a few months already. Jesus' death has been at the center of all that Paul has had to say in this letter. So in chapter 3, 
We read, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, just as a side note, when it says publicly portrayed as crucified, it means placarded or on display for all to see. Later in chapter 3, we read, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The cross is always at the center, not just here in the book of Galatians, but all through the New Testament. The cross is the center of the Christian faith. This is why Paul, when he writes to the church in Corinth, says this, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And here now, Paul says, he doesn't boast in the flesh. He doesn't boast about what he's done for God. What he boasts in is the cross. And if you could go back to the first century, you would understand just how crazy this would have sounded to anyone. It's an odd thing to say. In the last century, New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce made this observation. He said, The object of Paul's boasting was, by all ordinary standards of his day, the most ignoble of all objects, a matter of unrelieved shame, not of boasting. And then he said, It is difficult after 16 centuries and more during which the cross has been a sacred symbol to realize the unspeakable horror and loathing which the very mention or thought of the cross provoked in Paul's day. The word crux was unmentionable in polite Roman society. Even when one was being condemned to death by crucifixion, the sentence used an archaic formula which served as a sort of euphemism, hang him on the unlucky tree. That that was the prevailing attitude towards crucifixion in the first century. It was something you didn't mention in polite company. And now Paul comes along and says, far be it from me that I should boast, except... In the cross of Christ. Right? This isn't something that filled him with a sense of shame. It's something that filled him with a sense of of joy and glory. In fact, in Paul's mind, the cross was not just something worth boasting about, but the only thing worth boasting about. The gospel, the good news about Jesus, is centered on the cross. That is our boast. That's where the power resides. Dick Lucas pastored at St. Helen's Bishop Gate in London for many years. And he tells the story of attending a Billy Graham crusade back in 1955. Uh, Billy Graham came to Cambridge University to speak to the university mission. Prior to his coming, uh, Billy Graham had received a lot of uh, negative criticism or a lot of criticism in the London press. And that criticism ran along the lines of this. What in the world is the backwoods American fundamentalist doing here, coming and talking to our best and our brightest? And that criticism had an impact on Graham. For the first few nights that he spoke, he packed his messages with lots of content from Kierkegaard and Nietzsche and Sartre. He didn't want to appear intellectually out of his element before a prestigious university audience. According to his own biography, he didn't do very well the first four nights that he spoke. But on the last night, Billy Graham decided that he was simply going to preach about the blood of Jesus. 
rather than impressing his audience with his knowledge, he was simply going to boast in the cross of Christ. And here's how Dick Lucas, who was in attendance that night, recounted the experience. He said, I'll never forget that night. I was in a totally packed chancel sitting on the floor with the regent's professor of divinity sitting on one side and the chaplain of a college, a future bishop, on the other side. Now, these were good men in many ways, but they were completely against the idea that we needed salvation from sin by the blood of Christ. And that night, Billy got up, started in Genesis, and went right through the whole Bible talking about every single blood sacrifice you can imagine. The blood was flowing all through great St. Mary's everywhere for three quarters of an hour. And both my neighbors were terribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. It was everything they disliked and dreaded. But at the end of the sermon, to everybody's shock, about 400 young men and young women stayed to commit their lives to Christ. And Lucas then told the story of meeting with a young pastor, a Cambridge University graduate years later, years after this event. And Lucas said to him, where did your Christian story begin? Oh, the man said, Cambridge, 1955. When? The Billy Graham crusade. What night? The last night. How did it happen? And he said, all I remember is, I walked out of Great St. Mary's thinking for the first time of my life that Christ really died for me. See, that's the power of the cross. When you understand that what we're doing is we are not presenting our best record to God. What we are doing is accepting the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf on the cross. Our story is not, I clean myself up. I kept myself pure. I've lived as righteously as I can. Our story is that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. The second stanza of the great hymn, When I survey the wondrous crosses, this forbidden Lord that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. Third thing we discover here are the true marks of the Christian life. So if it's not an external thing like circumcision that identifies us as a Christian, what is it? Well, I want to quickly point out three things. The first one is crucifixion with Jesus. See, it's not circumcision, but crucifixion. Listen again to verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So that verse actually tells us there are three crucifixions. Uh, Jesus was crucified. That's the one that changes everything, grants us salvation. But then there are these other two crucifixions. I've been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me. We've actually already encountered this twice before in Galatians. In chapter 2, it says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
And then in chapter 5, we read this. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So what does it mean to say that I've been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me? Well, what it means is that as Christians, we no longer think the way the world thinks. We no longer talk the way the world talks. We no longer behave the way the world behaves. We no longer take comfort in the comforts that the world offers. We no longer value what the world values. We no longer care what the world thinks. That's not what defines us. What matters to us is God's assessment. Second distinguishing mark of the Christian life is suffering for Jesus. So it's crucifixion with Jesus and suffering for Jesus. Not the most popular truth, I know. I'm not going to go into this in any great detail, but I take this from what Paul says in verse 17. He says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Now, the marks he's talking about is the marks from the suffering he's experienced for preaching Jesus. But just remember the context of what's happening here. The false teachers were saying, well, the mark you need to have to show that you belong to God is the mark of circumcision. Now, Paul had all of the Jewish credentials and then some. I read you that passage from Philippians already. But what he says here is, you want to know what outward sign I have on my flesh that identifies me? It's the marks of the suffering that I've experienced for Jesus. And Paul understood this. In in 2 Corinthians, he outlines or he chronicles all the, the suffering that he's undergone for his faith in Jesus. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they the servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, Danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Now that was Paul's experience. He could say, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. So we might think, well, you know, this suffering part for this suffering for Jesus, that's something Paul experienced, maybe some of those apostles experienced, maybe people in other parts of the world experience. But I would say this, look, if we are faithful to Jesus, we will experience suffering on his behalf. That's why Paul will say elsewhere, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, that persecution might take lots of different forms. It it, it might come from your family. It might come in your workplace. It, It might come from others who are just hostile towards you and want nothing to do with you, but there is suffering that comes. It's one of the distinguishing marks that we are the children of God. The third distinguishing mark of the Christian faith or the Christian life 
is the grace of Jesus. So it's crucifixion with Jesus, it's suffering for Jesus, but it is the grace of Jesus. As one commentator said, Paul bore the marks of Jesus on his body and the grace of Jesus in his spirit. Now, you've been at the book of Galatians for four months now. And if we miss grace in this letter, we miss the whole thing. This letter is bookended with grace. It's stuffed with grace. Verse 3 of chapter 1 says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's really the first thing Paul says in this letter, apart from introducing himself. So he begins the letter that way, saying grace to you. And then here's how he ends the letter in verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. See, the thing that really distinguishes us is that the grace of Jesus resides with us and in us. And as Paul you know, praise this prayer for the church in Galatia. This is my prayer for us as a church as well, that the grace of the Lord Jesus would be with your spirit or our spirit. And I just think it's fitting for us to, to end by just, just allowing me to pray that over you this morning. So let's do that. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you that... Uh, Our standing before you is not on the basis of something that we have done, something that we have earned from you. It is on the basis of Jesus' death on the cross on our behalf. And God, I pray that that would be the thing that we boast about, that when we get opportunities to tell our story, to meet new people, that the thing that they're struck by is not how smart we are, how wealthy we might be, what our career is, but that the thing that would strike them most is the boast in the cross that we have, that the the grace that is in us would come across. And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us as individuals to experience and then to manifest the grace that you've so richly given to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.